One of the things that you do when you um, design adventures as an adventure specialist is you push people out of their comfort zone into their growth zone. So as an example of that, I think I am probably the farthest person down the spectrum as a dyslexic, and I'm going to read to you Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord. You have known me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before the, Lord, before the word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me, the light be, the light and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do not I hate them who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them and count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Uh, so good to be with you, and great to be in an air-conditioned building. <laughs> ah, can we uh, turn some lights on, or are they all on? It just really seems really bright. I, was it? The, there we are. Yeah, I need to see you. I'm what you call a dialogical preacher. I need to have a dialogue with you, uh, and I, I can't do that without seeing your faces. So I want to encourage you, uh, two weeks from today, uh, I love the fact that we're talking about this incredible handoff that's, that's happening. Uh, I'm so excited because uh, we as a church, we, we are uh, in it for the long haul. 
Uh, we, uh, we're building a cathedral here, not just a one-generation church. And uh, so that means um, that we're handing things off, but I'm going to still be around as grandpa. <laughs> so I'll still be mentoring, coaching, and uh, preaching, um, but I'm not going to go to any busy meetings. <laughs> if I walk in there and there's, there's somebody with a pen and paper and a laptop, I said, I'm, I'm getting out of here, you know. <laughs> But uh, I'm still in it for pastoring and, and uh, leading. But the, I'm really passionate about this thing's got to go beyond us. It's got to go to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. Those of you that have grandchildren, you know there's nothing more thrilling to not just see your kids, but your grandkids walking in the ways of the Lord. Amen? So uh, two weeks. i got to warn you, though. I, I'm hoping you'll come. Uh, three weeks from today is the great handoff Sunday where I'll be commissioning Ryan. And I'm going to be charging Ryan. Um, he wants to be charged. That's kind of a, uh, an old church word uh, to be saying, you know, this is what we expect of you. And this is what we're going to pray for you and so forth. This is what it means to pastor and proclaim the word of God. And we're asking you to be faithful to do that. Uh, and then we'll lay hands on him. But... A week before that, this is what I'm going to warn you about. I'm going to be charging you. It's something that most of us don't think about. Like me? This is all up to Ryan, not up to me. Uh, 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 uh. This is up to us, right? And uh, so my message, though I'm going to be springboarding off of the Psalms that we've been doing, this will be Psalm 42, I'm really going to steer it towards uh, kind of what Paul does to the Ephesians church of, of asking you to think about, pray about, this is what's expected of you as, as a member, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, so what does that mean as this church goes forward? Uh, if you look th at the Bible, uh, the Bible never says, um, try to find a, a really entertaining captivating preacher <laughs> and pray often that he says what you want him to say the Bible never says that the Bible puts all the weight on you and me when I'm sitting out there with you that um, let him who has ears let them hear did you know that so I pray every week for you that you will have hearts that listen and hear so the, the message two weeks from now is going to be kind of along those lines of this is what it, it means for us to now follow Jesus into the next generation. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Does that sound a little weak? <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a Bible, we're in Psalm 139, and many people have told me this is my favorite. This is my all-time favorite. It, it, it is an incredible psalm to think that David wrote this uh, 3,000 years ago. And the older I get and the more I'm aware of where we're going as a modern society, the more my belief is that people back then were smarter than we are. We're, we're good at computers. But it, it seems that uh, the way they thought of things, the way they approached things, and especially David here under the inspiration of the Lord. But the way I'd like to get into this is 
to bring you back to your uh, years that you were of college age. So 18 to 22, I don't think many of us escaped a late night discussion with uh, someone about God. Maybe it came through the door of those Christians, or maybe it came through the door of that professor. But we, we, we spent a few nights late discussing God. And it was okay to discuss it because nobody in the room was preachy, or no one was trying to reel us in to, we have to go to that church or that church. It was just abstract. And, and probably these three concepts came out, at least in my life they did. If there is a God, whether, I, whether there is or not, if there is a God, he's got to be all-knowing. I mean, that's just kind of like basic one. I mean, if you're going to be God, you better know everything, you know. Otherwise, you're not a candidate. Um, the second thing is you better be everywhere at once, omnipresent. It's kind of like basic God. And then the third thing is you better be all-powerful. And then there are some conversations that crossed over, as David does in this psalm, into the subject of evil. Those evil people. It's never me evil people, right? It's them. Those evil people. Ooh, why are they messing up the world when I make it so wonderful? <laughs> So the first category is kind of the armchair professor that's just talking about God. And the second category, we kind of turn into a prosecutor where we're prosecuting God and he's on the witness stand. We're saying, where were you on the night of such and such when I got so hurt and wounded and you, 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 know, you claimed to be a God of love, but you weren't there. So what those two approaches have in common is we're objectifying God. It's as if God isn't in the room. He's out there, and we're discussing him, almost like a comatose patient, and we're standing by the bedside of comatose God, and we're saying, I don't know, do you think he's going to live or not? What's going to happen with this thing? But what David does here is take the attributes of God and he pulls them into us and makes it, in the words of Donald Miller, scary close. You know, when God gets scary close to you, it's all the difference in the world. There's no more talk about God. It's like, hello, God, and now what do I do? I had that experience. I've had it multiple times in my life. It doesn't stop once you become a Christian these uh, wonderful challenging encounters but the first time I can remember I was 16 I was camping with my folks up in Lake Kachuma north of Santa Barbara and uh, as I remember we had just graduated from tenting we had grown up putting up tents uh, every night I'm putting up tents I remember all the way up to Banff Canada traveling putting up a tent pumping up the sleeping bags and, and then camping for a night and then pulling it all down and rolling out because we got to get to Banff, Canada and then doing it back. So we had just graduated. I guess my dad was doing better in his business and uh, we now had a camper, you know, and he had a pickup truck that 
park the camper in our backyard and put it on whenever we go. So I left the camper that night because I was 16, and I went for a walk in the campground, and uh, it was amazing to my memory uh, because it was a moonless night. And having grown up in Santa Ana, Orange County, I don't know if I ever saw any stars. You know, it's just smog. It seemed like it all the time, you know. And, and I thought, oh my gosh. And there were just millions of stars staring at me. And I just walked along in awe, looking at the stars. And then all of a sudden, I had this feeling that someone was looking back at me and it wasn't the stars. It was scary close. <laughs> and I did what any intelligent person would do, is I turned around and ran back to the camper. <laughs> After that, I began this journey of wrestling with, is there a God, and who would that God be? And it led me into a lot of readings, Eastern religions and visiting different churches, and different, who, who would God be? So David takes us there today, and I have to warn you, buckle your seatbelt, God is going to come scary close. You, you okay with that? So he begins in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You have me in and behind and before, and you have laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me. I can't attain to it. So what's happening here is, you know, that he's talking about the omniscience of God. God knows everything. And as I said, it's, it's part and parcel to being God. But he's not describing God as big brother. You know, the things we worry about with the NSA and the FBI, that they have cameras everywhere and they're checking this and checking that. And that's kind of this computerized mainframe that's, that's gathering data about you, God knows all of that. But where this omniscience takes us to is this interpersonal encounter. So check out the words in the very beginning where he says, you have searched me and you know me. That's kind of the heading of where this first section is going. You're, you, you've scanned me inside and out. You know everything about me. And think about all the parts of you. What you think, the things you say, where you go. Those are kind of the gathering of the facts. But he also understands the intra-personal side of you, which is the inside of you. How you're made, how you think, what you like, what you don't like, what your opinions are, how you express your opinions, all the quantitative and qualitative stuff about you. God knows it. He searched you, but notice what David says then, and you know me. This is a scary close word. The Hebrew is yada. 
And this is not our word for knowledge, because our word for knowledge tends to be objective gathering of facts and maybe the interaction of those facts to where we can become uh, opinionated about something. But this is interpersonal knowledge. So the word yada first occurs in the Old Testament and then multiple times, dozens of times throughout the Old Testament uh, for the idea of intercourse. It says that Adam knew Eve, yada. And now, did you feel it? Just get real quiet. <laughs> Just because a pastor mentioned the word intercourse, it's like, whoa, this, where's this going? Okay. So, but it's the idea of interpersonal knowledge. The Bible isn't interested with this Greek Western idea of the com, com, uh, accumulation of facts. The Hebrew mindset is always personal. In fact, the Greeks were always interested in truth, the gathering of things that we would decide what's true or not. Pilate, what is truth? But in the Hebrew mindset, it's always about truth and its faithfulness to another person, truth and its faithfulness to society, truth. And it's your faithfulness to yourself and to God. That's truth. See? The interpersonal difference. So you have searched me, and the verb is perfect tense. You did it in the past. You're doing it in the present. But then he switches to the present tense, and you know me. Now. He not just knew me, but you know me now. Scary close. Wow. We're famous as believers for always talking about the testimonies of what God did. And we love to do that because it's true. He did all those things. But we're not always open to telling people what he's doing right now. Well, I woke up. I was an idiot. I yelled at my wife. And, and then I got in the car mad, but we still came to church. That's what he's doing now. And God knows it. So he's not this impartial brain, but there's this, in the words of Martin Buber, this I-thou conversation, this dialogue that's going on, and it's an intimate, intimate thing. Then I want you to see how the verbs here in these early verses stack up. Let me just read them to you. You've searched me, you know me, when I sit, when I rise, you perceive me from afar. You discern my lying down. You're familiar. You are familiar. You know it. You hem me in. And finally, you lay your hand on me. This is an active, active God that because he knows you, he's active in your life. When I think about people that are struggling with the idea of, is there a God? I often sense that there's this internal struggle going on within them. That their brain, their scientific brain, which is post-enlightenment, 
which is only 200 years of the history of humankind, has decided the only way we can know anything is through the test tube, science, or logic. And so I block out all the other ways that we might know something to just those two colors of the rainbow, and I decide there's no God. And because I decided it, there isn't any God. But I'm always fascinated by the fact that we're even having this conversation because there's an internal struggle. I mean, even the word atheist, they can't use the term without using the word theist, which is God. I am the not God person. Pick a different word since you don't believe in God. Pick a different word than the not God person, you know? It, it's this internal struggle that I sense there should be, there could be, but I've predecided that there isn't. And so the struggle goes on. But there's actually another way to think. The other way to think, which is equally scientific, studying anthropology, is to say that for thousands and thousands of years, for hundreds and possibly thousands and thousands of cultures and societies, every one of them has believed in God, gods, or spirits behind every... It, it's, it's in us, and wouldn't it be more logical, or at least equally logical, to say, there probably is a God. We just haven't decided how to agree on who he is. And then... Out of all these cultures, the Hebrew culture emerges and says, no. Distinct from all the pantheistic cultures of the Middle East, no, there's one God. And he knows you. Scary close. We go into the next section, and we come to these verses in verse 7, where I find ourselves now dealing with the omnipresence of God, meaning he's, he's everywhere. Look at verse 7. Where? So there it is. He's talking about location. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I go to, to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine or become like the day. And for darkness is as light to you. There's a question that's starting to emerge here. And the, the question has to be, it's the elephant in the room. Why? Why are we having this conversation? Why is this person running from God? If I go here, go there, you're everywhere, you know? Uh, I'm thinking of my son's song, uh, Dare You to Move. Um, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? You can't get away. Salvation is here. 
it, it, but why? Why would you want to run away? But the bigger question is, why does God want us? Do you feel that question? Have you ever thought of that? Surely, God, you have something better to do. I mean, I am some speck amoeba in the universe. And really? Are we, you're really thinking about me this much? Those are the obvious questions that are behind the verses here. But this running away, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? Adam and Eve, remember? After sinning, they first hid. And we, we want to say, come on, fig leaves, come on. God, you're hiding from God. But then the other thing is that he asked the question, where are you? And we know that that's a rhetorical question because he knew where they were, but he was drawing the attention to the fact, what are you doing wanting to run away from me now? It's, it's born in us. It, am, am I saying something that I shouldn't be saying? Some of you are looking at me like, Mark, we've never run away from God. I've, I've run away from God as a Christian, not just, uh, you know, B.C., so the point is, God, wherever I go, you are there. And notice how he guides. It says, he uses the language, you guide me, you hold me fast, uh, you shine like the day. So he's not just wanting to cut us off at every point, but this is a redemptive omnipresence where he's trying to steer us and to guide us. I think David, in his own life, probably experienced this when he was running from Saul. Do you remember those pages in 1 Samuel where he is running from Saul, and Saul is using all the forces of the kingdom of Israel to kill this one man who's destined to be the king of Israel. And he just runs and runs and runs, but he keeps discovering the redemptive hand of God in protecting him from Saul and protecting him from dying. And maybe you have those circumstances as you look back in your life. I could have been killed, but I wasn't. That could have been bad, but it wasn't. Or it was bad, but it could have been worse. He makes even the darkest nights to shine I'm thinking of Romans 8:28. All things work together. Even the darkest things, God will weave it into some goodness. So He knows you. He's all around you. Then He talks about the power of God. But He talks about the power of God, I think, in a way that we don't expect. He says in verse 13. For you created me, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book 
before one of them came to be. How precious to me. And he goes back to now thoughts. Are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake, I'm still with you. So I do think that he turns now to the creative acts of God, which we might call omnipotence, the power of God to work, to do something, to not just think about it, not just be everywhere, but actually do. But surprisingly, he goes in a direction I don't usually go. When I think of the power of God, I think of big. Do you do that too? Like how big is God? How powerful is God? Big, powerful. Like he's the prime mover behind the Big Bang. All powerful. But David doesn't go macro, he goes micro. So surprising. He thinks about when he was formed in the womb of his mother. Still creative, but now intricately creative. It's amazing in science, the more we go macro and micro, the more we don't know, not the more we know. This powerful, intricate, creative God that made you scary close. He knew you when you were still in the womb trying to get your act together. Still unformed, still becoming. He already knew you. You created my inmost being. You knit me. I love that word knit. How do I mean, it's just... A beautiful word. You knit me in my mother's womb. I've had allergies over the years, not so much anymore, but um, when I was a kid, I went through three sets of uh, allergy shots, me and my brother, you know, and then you develop a new allergy and you go through these shots. I, you know, so whenever I get a shot, it's like whatever, you know, because I've used to give them, get them two or three times a week. Well, here in Encinitas, I had a doctor who was not only an MD, but a PhD. And I love the PhD because, okay, you're not only a practicing doctor, but you actually are a research practicing doctor. And um, one day we were having this conversation. I decided to dig a little deeper because the conversation was lending itself to this. And I said, you know, you, you, you've studied the human anatomy intricately and um, so just between you and me what's your verdict on God <laughs> and he smiled at me and he said well Mark I am not a religious man at all I'll be the first to tell you but I will also be the first to tell you that there is no way that the human body could be what it is without God he says, I know too much about the intricacies of the body. That the chances, and he pointed to me, he says, the chances of you being 
a series of mutant uh, steps that just happen to go in your favor rather than devolve. Uh, it, it's just, I, he said, I don't have the capacity to imagine that. Too many things went right for you to be you. And he began to talk about each organ and the intricacies of, of each organ. Amazing that here you sit, listening to me, thinking about what I am saying and experiencing that with your history and your past and all the other thoughts that you've had. And, and, and God has designed all of that. Wow. Now that comes scary, scary close, doesn't it? That he was up to something even before. Now that doesn't mean you're perfect. I know people say all the time, God don't make junk. <laughs> but, and that's true, but at the same time, you were made in a broken world. So I'm not sure your DNA is perfect, okay? This is a fallen, broken world. I'm not sure that your parents were perfect. This is a broken, fallen world. I'm not sure your siblings and your home, home environment <coughs> were perfect. It's a broken, fallen world. But God somehow wanted a relationship with you even when you were first conceived. Now, I'm going to pause here just for a moment, and I want you to guys to just listen to me, because I don't think I could be a faithful preacher in the culture that we're in right now without addressing one subject, and it's the subject that the room is going to go dead quiet on. Uh, it's the subject of abortion. And I'm going to ask you not to applaud if I say something you like or boo if I say something you don't like, okay? Because um, we don't listen to see if we agree with the person and he says the right thing. We listen to learn and to grow. But from my humble perspective, the reason we are valuable is because we are made in the image of God. And so... In the womb, it's not just this biological entity that's developing. It's a person made in the image of God. That's why in Genesis 9, we don't murder. But that's also why in James, that we don't, we don't slander, we don't hate, and we don't lie. We don't do harm to another person, not because they're a good person, but because they're, they're made in the image of God. And that standard becomes precious to a culture and society. And that's why the issue of abortion is so dear. Now, having said that, I understand that we live in a culture where there's two sets of glasses. There's a red set of glasses and there's a blue set of glasses. And what I always try to do is wear neither and to try to find biblical glasses. So I would say to you, of course, the church has always been for the preservation of babies. 
early church, when it, there was infanticide happening in the first century A.D., the church was rescuing babies. When, in, when there was uh, babies we were being left out in the cold when they were... Uh, uh, because they were not wanted. The church was going out rescuing them and saving them. So the church has always had a stance against harming the weakest and the most helpless part of our society. But that said, the church has always been there for people that are struggling with dilemmas in life. That's why we as a church have supported crisis pregnancy centers uh, because we know that a woman has in our society a free choice and she needs to make her free choice of what she's going to... But we're going to be there for her. We're going to counsel. And this is what the church often doesn't say publicly is we're going to love and forgive people who have made unfortunate choices have had an abortion and we're going to buck up men we're going to forgive men who have been a part of the pregnancy all because of what David is saying here the value the value now here's what's key about the uniqueness of the Christian glasses our society tells people that the reason you are precious, the reason you are special is because you're a snowflake. You're unique, and there isn't anyone like you, and that's why you're valuable. And you know, that goes really well for a seven-year-old. But as we start growing up and saying, uniqueness is the value of me? There's no standard outside of me? That doesn't assure me. That makes me feel very uncomfortable that I'm the standard of me. Uh, isn't there something else outside of me that would give me fun? And the Bible says, yes, 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 yes. You're the image of God. But now, in that, coming back to this passage, God is pursuing you into relationship. So watch how this thing ends. Um, David kind of emotes for a second, and this is the part of the, uh, the psalm that most people don't like, including me. <laughs> if only you would slay the wicked, O God. By the way, let me just add an addendum to what I just said, um, because some of you weren't there. And the reason... I love, and I think God loves, unborn children. And part of the reason is I love women who have been caught in a dilemma of what to do with this child and may unfortunately have had an abortion. Are they welcome in the church? Can they come? Can they be loved? is as I shared a few months ago, my grandmother had an abortion. Because it was an impoverished family, the relatives supported the family. They told her when she got pregnant with her third child 
that uh, she had to have an abortion or they're going to cut off all funding, which she did. And she went into a huge depression. And in that, uh, her doctor said, the only way out I know of is possibly to get pregnant. And out of that, she had my mother. So I'm the product of a, a sinful woman, you might say, that was stuck in a dilemma. But I'm also the product of someone that believed in life, and I'm thankful. And I think that's the voice we want to hear from the church. It's both we protect babies, but we have compassion. You with me there? So now, let's go forward. So David, in verse 19, he, he does what I don't like. And he says, if only you would slay the wicked, oh God. Because <laughs> this is kind of the, the uh, religious talk that I don't like. Just away with them, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them my enemies. Oh, like a Christian, like, what do I do with this? Do I memorize it? <laughs> I remember my sons paddling up to me, one of them anyway, um, we were surfing out at a place called Pipes, and uh, there was a guy out there, and it happens every now and then, that's frustrated as a surfer, and is not getting the waves that he wants, and, and so, but he wants to be big, and so he was F-bombing every, every wave, you know, and uh, it was annoying all of us, and and you know you've heard it. You've been you know the, the guy that creates a bravado by f bombing. And so one of my sons paddled up to him. He said, "Dad, make him stop. Make him stop." And I said to him, "I get it. I mean, but I'm not King Neptune. I don't patrol. I don't police the shores." Say, like, up and watch your mouth, son. You know. And I said. He said, what do we do? I said, pray for him. He's adjectively deprived. <laughs> it's the only adjective he knows. So. But there are those times where you face something that bothers you. Like, oh, sick him, God. So one beautiful thing about Scripture, you're still there, right? One beautiful thing about Scripture is a thing called progressive revelation, which sounds fancy, but it's just the idea that what we know in Genesis, Genesis 1 is less than what we know in Revelation 22. As you go through Scripture, it unfolds, right? So what we know in Psalm 139 is less than what we know in the New Testament when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, right? But if you look back at what David is doing, I think we do get it because this goes all the way back to the armchair uh, philosopher and the prosecutor. What we don't like about 
God sometimes is he's allowing evil in the world. He doesn't express it well, but it's this issue. God, if you are omnipresent, if you are omniscient and all-powerful, do something, right? And God will, and God is, and God has in salvation history as it unfolds, and it will all be put right one day. But watch where David lands. And this is where you and I need to land. Search me. <laughs> After he just blazed his guns at society, which we are often so good at. That's wrong, that's wrong. <laughs> There, I'm a Christian, you know. <laughs> this is where a true Christian needs to land. Search me. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. And isn't that where we all want to end? God, the problem with the world, as G.K. Chesterton allegedly penned once, is me. The problem with the world is me. And if all of us, me's, would say, search me, God. Get scary close. What would happen? I want to end with this poem that I shared with you maybe less than a year ago, but uh, it's been such a part of my life over the years. I'm just going to read a, a two or three stanzas from it, but it's called The Hound of Heaven. Um, by Francis Thompson, and it reads like this. I fled him down the nights, down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. This is my story. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind in the midst of tears. And then drop down a few stanzas, and he says, from those strong feet that followed followed after but with unhurried chase and unperturbed pace deliberate speed majestic instancy they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet all things betray thee who betrayest me what he's saying is that all the things you're trusting in those props are betraying you and that's causing you to not want to be with me. So later on, he concludes, uh, this is God, the hound of heaven speaking, ah, oh, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. I'm the one you've been seeking all your life, and thou dravest love from thee who dravest me.
hard language to understand, but he's simply saying, you drove love away from yourself when you drove me away from you. So friends, God knows you. And now the question is, what will we do in wanting to be known? Scary close. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for being the hound of heaven. Why? I guess it's just such a question for me. Your love, your grace. Why do you want to know us and, and surround us and be powerfully working in our lives and creatively working and making us into the image of God? Why? It's so driven by your love, who you are. And God, we don't know anything else to do but to surrender. To say, search me. God, we today, we surrender. And if today you, like me, you want to raise your hand with me and say, Lord, I once again freshly surrender, not then but now, to you. Just do it with me right now. Raise your hand wherever you are, if that's you. If that's your heart's cry, yes, tons of you over here to my right and in the middle. And I'm raising my hand with you. God, I want you to search me and know me. I want you to find me, hound of heaven. I want to be yours. Lord, freshly come into our lives, freshly come into this church, freshly come into the church to not just be a church of rightness, but to be a church that has the flavor of Jesus, that's loving people, pursuing people with your love. God, we invite you this day as we surrender to fulfill the destiny that you know about for us. Fulfill that in our lives. Constantly be around us, talking to us, encouraging us by your Holy Spirit and Lord, creating us into the image of your dear son. Do all of this, we pray, because today we surrender to your love in Jesus' name.